Reverse engineering is the process of taking an engineered artifact like a software program, a coffee pot, or a car, and figuring out how it works at a deeper level. Sometimes we reverse engineer something to build features on top of it. Other times, we're interested in understanding its security properties. While reverse engineering information technology systems like cell phones and computers is a well-known field, reverse engineering operational technology is relatively less well-known. In this episode, special guests Robert Peasley and Brian McCord discuss this exciting frontier of technology, hacking, and cybersecurity. Brian, Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Robert Peasley has over a decade of experience in offensive cyber, supporting multiple clients across the Department of Defense and providing tools to red teams at Fortune 500 companies. He has attacked everything from servers to cell phones and engine control modules to armed personnel carriers. He is currently a senior reverse engineer at Shift 5. Brian McCord has a background developing cyber capabilities and planning offensive cyber operations for the US military and beyond. He has over seven years of experience leading engineering teams charged with solving complex cybersecurity research problems and helps bring the hacker mindset to bear on work at Shift 5. He is currently vice president of labs at Shift 5 and responsible for all vulnerability research and reverse engineering at the company. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Uh, so this is a really interesting topic for a lot of folks that are in and around technology, maybe people that have been in information technology administration or software engineering. And they've always wondered like, well, what do these reverse engineers do and how do cybersecurity professionals take a look at software that they don't have the source code to? And uh, furthermore, how do they do this on, on things that aren't even software or some combination of hardware and software? So I wanted to uh, spend a little time with you guys today talking first off about what reverse engineering is and then get into some of the tools and techniques and uh, really what is a day in the life of uh, what a reverse engineer does. So maybe we can start off with just defining reverse engineering. What is it? And, 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 and we go from there. Sure. I could take a crack at it. Uh, so what reverse engineering really is, is using all the tools at your disposal to understand something that you don't really have good documentation or a good sense of what's going on, right? So for example, uh, if you're living in the IT space and you're a computer coder, most of the time you're given the source code for something, right? It's got the Python, it's got the C code. You can go line by line and figure out exactly what's going on inside your piece of code or inside your hardware device or on your microcontroller. You can see the scripts that are running, the code's running. Well, what happens if you can't do that, right? What happens if no one gave you the source code or the manual for what you have doesn't exist or you don't have the deep down technical manual for the car that you're trying to look at? How do you figure out what's actually going on inside the black box? And I think, you know, throughout the rest of this podcast today, we're going to go through some of those techniques. But the idea is if I'm given something and I have no idea what's going on inside, what sort of code can I use? What sort of physical processes? What sort of understanding about how these sort of hardware and software components normally work? Can I use to backtrack, learn small bits of pieces about that black box? and then start to put it together like a puzzle where one piece unlocks what another piece is doing, which unlocks more until eventually you have a complete understanding of what is going on inside that piece of software or that hardware. And now you can understand it and manipulate it to do other things. Gotcha. So Robert, when we think about a piece of software that's on your laptop, um, you know, to, to a layperson, you might think, okay, well, the software is on the laptop. Why can't you just go look at the software and understand how it's written? Someone, a human being wrote the software 
um, you have the software on your computer, just go read the software. Why do you have to go through this process of reverse engineering? The process of building software, you know, going from source code, it goes into like this funnel and in goes source code and out goes machine code. And that machine code cannot actually be easily translated back into source code. So we have a lot of tools that will help us take what is just a bunch of ones and zeros and convert that back into what we call disassembly. And the disassembly is very close to what the processor actually sees and executes those instructions. Luckily for us, as time has gone on, the tools have gotten a lot better too. So we can actually get back to what we consider a pseudo code. It looks kind of like source code, but isn't. And there's still a lot of work that has to be done to understand uh, things like the data structures and the, uh, the program layout and how it all executes in memory and all that. Gotcha. So the way software is written, there's almost like a forward engineering step of like, you've got source code, something that certain human beings can read. Um, and uh, that gets translated through something like a compiler, mm -hmm. makes machine code that the machine knows how to run the ones and zeros. And it's not a straightforward process to go from the zeros and ones back into source code, right? Exactly right. Yeah, so it sounds like kind of a giant pain to take these binaries, right? These these this machine code and turn it back into something that people can understand. Besides just a morbid curiosity and how these things work, why would somebody go through the process of reverse engineering something? So it's actually an interesting question. That's what I was thinking about while Brian was describing, like why would someone go through all that pain? I started off as a malware reverse engineer, so you initially get a sample in. It's a binary and how do you know if it's doing exactly what the source that you got it from is saying that's going to do? So how do you know that, you know, your version of a PDF reader on your computer is just reading PDFs? How do you know it's not taking a copy of that PDF and then sending it out to someone else that you don't really want reading what you're viewing on your PDF reader? Well, that's what initially reverse engineering for me, that was my entry point is just doing that verification and making sure that a binary was not malicious. But over time, as my uh, skill set developed and my uh, aspirations changed, um, you start to look at software and if it has a bug in it, if it's taking some sort of input and then it's not handling that input properly, can you make the program do something different than what it was intended to do by the original author? And that's when we start to get into the vulnerability analysis and exploitation. And I would say that for many cyber professionals, uh, the, the pipeline is pretty similar. You start off either in malware analysis or uh, developing cheats for games is another huge area that people get their start in this. And then you start to go where you know, your interests take you now that you have the ability to analyze a program to see if it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, that's so interesting. I've, I've seen this time and time again that people who are into video games start poking around and kicking the tires and saying like, I wonder if there's a way that we could uh, build a bot or if there's, you know, uh, undocumented features in this game that we can exploit. Tell me a little bit about what that looks like. I mean, if you, have you done uh, any game hacking before or know people that have done it? Yeah, I'm going to get crucified for this. So, <laughs> you know, there's a natural interest. Like, how do you take a system like a game engine? And for me, it was seeing stuff that other people had released. And like, well, how do you make it so that you can see through walls? How do you make it so you can make it so your guns always point at an enemy's head in a first-person shooter? And so I got my teeth cut on, like, enemy territory, the Wolfenstein mod. Perfect. And I would say <laughs> that even now, it's, like, still a huge like almost training ground for people because uh, enemy territory went open source and now it's a lot easier to see, you know, how do you hook into this process that's running and then find like all these procedures and then like inject your own code and then do different things. And it's become like, I would say almost like the game hacking training ground now, but that's, 
exactly like my start. Right. Yeah. It makes a ton of sense because there's like a, there's an analogy there that's so close to developing uh, malware, right? So mm-hmm. when you're building a game hack, you've got, you know, forward engineered software, you've got binaries without source most of the time uh, that are on your computer because, you know, you're running the game and you want to build programs that lay on top of that and provide additional features, um, which maybe the game designers don't want you to have, but uh, nonetheless, it's, it's your computer, right? So you can, you can bump the bits around how you want. Uh, and that's not super dissimilar from how a lot of malware authors are, uh, are, are trying to do things, right? There's a service that's running on some computer somewhere and you have, it's well-known software that's running on it. And you've looked at that software and realized, oh, there are some undocumented features in here that allow me to run code in a way that no one anticipated. So you build a payload that, you know, puts some unanticipated input into this service and, and get it running on that, on that other computer. So I think there's just like the, the mentality of like, I get it. You've got rules to this system. I want to do this thing and you're not going to tell me not to. And so I'm going to figure out a way to make it happen. It's like, uh, that's that mentality and that skill set seems to be pretty, pretty common. Right. Mm, absolutely. And I think um, there's also another interesting class of, of usages um, that, uh, you know, this conversation around game hacking opens up, which is sure you've got, I mean, it is very clear that cybersecurity is a huge component of why people reverse engineer stuff, um, why you write systems programs uh, and low level programs to like lay on top of these, uh, these, these finished binaries to, to do the things that you want to do. But there's also an, a whole interesting class of just like hardware hacking and um, modding things, right? You've got this finished product, but maybe you want to add some some custom features to it, right? I remember back in the day when I first got my license, like I put a computer in my car um, and like <laughs> had too. a little LCD screen. Yeah, right. Um, you know, and like you plug into the OBD2 port and you get like diagnostic codes and you can see like the... I mean, it's 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 kind of stupid that you have a tachometer in your dash, but how cool is it that you can put it on an LCD screen? You know, you can like you can start modding things in ways that the manufacturer maybe never thought of, uh, and that's reverse engineering, right? Because you've got a finished product, you're you're figuring out how it works through like thinly or, or, or totally undocumented means, and then you're you're adding features on top. So there's, there's a part of reverse engineering that's also adding features to finished products, um, which, which comes in, in handy in a whole bunch of contexts. And one that I've actually been seeing a lot of lately is, uh, you know, you get a cheap webcam that's made in China and you bring it over and you don't want, there's, there's two avenues, right? Like first, maybe you want to make sure that that firmware that's, it comes with on that camera is only allowing you to view it locally. But another big one is a lot of the service providers are going to like a, a cloud model so you buy the camera pretty cheap and you have to pay a subscription fee to you know, actually store and view your feeds. And people have been developing uh, through reverse engineering alternate firmwares that allow you to like view your streams locally. And I think that's completely like enabling the consumer to take a piece right. of hardware and use it the way that they want to because it's theirs. Yeah, I think it's so like liberating when you've got the ability to take a piece of hardware, something that you've bought uh, and and you can customize it to your purposes. I know there was like actually a big legal fight with some of the um, farm equipment manufacturers, mm-hmm. right? Like they, they call it like I think the right to repair or something like that is the is the the name of the the movement. But it's essentially this idea that like, hey, I bought this this tractor um, and it's important for my livelihood. 
uh, I should be able to repair it and mod it and, and do things to it as I see fit. And there's like some really interesting, um, really interesting legal challenges around this, this concept, but it all comes back to reverse engineering, right? The ability to take something that's a finished product, understand how it works and then layer features on top of it. Right. That's back to the, uh, you know, the use case you were talking about before. So in it space, a lot of it has to do with how do I add a feature to software in OT space, where a lot of this reverse engineering gets started is these practical effects, right? So for example, in the car community, let's say your dashboard light goes off in your car and you know, uh-oh, something's wrong. It says check engine. Well, back in the day, you used to be able to pop the hood, figure out exactly what's going on because it's all mechanical, right? Something is snapped off, something is broken. But nowadays, a lot of these error codes are generated by the computer on the vehicle in an embedded system. They're stored in the memory on the computer and you have to access them through the OBD2 port which normally the car mechanic is the one that has to do. But let's say you don't want to spend a few hundred dollars on labor hours for the mechanic to go in, plug in his special cable, and get all the data off for you. How do you figure out what's wrong with your car, right? So there's been a lot of like kind of car modding communities that turn into like car fixing communities by trying to reverse out, okay, I can buy equipment like a $30 Raspberry Pi, put a $20 can hat on top of it and watch the bits transit the line and I can notice things like, oh, it keeps sending this message that starts with like zero B in hex. And then there's 40 you know, bits of data. Then there's some ending bits and then it keeps sending that over and over. So what is that? Then they can start doing like the Googling, right? Like, hey, are there any charts or manuals or a mechanic somewhere who's got a manual who wants to scan it, put it on the internet. Um, and then they start to break down this knowledge from essentially a zero knowledge game. All they know is there's a computer on the car and something's wrong. And start to look at the emanations from the box, look at the data transiting the critical lines. And then they turn that into a fix for their car, right? They see, oh, I see that my, um, you know, catalytic converter is messed up. So I'll just go replace that and I'll save myself 400 bucks for the mechanic to go plug in and find that out. Um, and same thing with tractors. People were trying to fix their own tractors uh, when the company was saying, in order for us to tell you what's wrong and fix it, you need to bring it into the warehouse. We need to deal with an it. authorized dealer. Yeah. yeah. Authorized yeah. dealer. And so um, that costs people money, right? So there's oftentimes an economic incentive to this. And then, of course, we at Share 5 are most concerned about the cybersecurity interests. So if you can do things like read data off a vehicle and you can determine like, hey, this is the message that says your car is broke, what sort of malicious things can you do, right? Can you, let's say, reverse engineer what that protocol looks like and then create messages that do things like turn the car left or turn the car right or engage the anti-lock brakes? And, you know, maybe it's a system as small as a car, but maybe it's huge. Maybe it's a plane or a train or a tank. And that's where really, we really start to get traction in our reverse engineering fields. It's like, let's figure out what kinds of things a malicious actor could do to these major end item systems. That is as simple as finding the right kind of message to send if they just have the time to sit there and kind of break apart the puzzle pieces to figure it out. Totally. Um, there's so much to unpack there. I think like one thing that might be helpful would be just to uh, center on what, what that you said, OT, um, you know, kind of digging into what OT is operational technology. I mean, the way, the way I think about these things is information technology, uh, things like cell phones, laptops, uh, network gear, they're there fundamentally to like manipulate information and data. 
And people use these to make decisions that, you know, business decisions. That's really what IT is all about. But OT, operational technology, things that sense uh, things in the physical world or actuate levers and motors and things, um, you know, things like robots and uh, locomotives and, and, and aircraft. Uh, these are things that are there to do business operations. And there's like a really important distinction because they're just the technology is used for very different things. But to your point, OT has like just seen an influx of digital components into these things, right? Now, what's interesting is most of these components, most of the time, aren't one running Windows 10. Um, and so for from a reverse engineer's perspective, there's really, it's, it's a very different environment. Um, and one of the things I wanted to dig into and, and something you have deep experience with, Robert, is what does, what are the, you know, let's talk a little bit about what reverse engineering looks like on an IT side, typical things that a reverse engineer would, would do to reverse engineer a game binary or a system software, something that's in the Windows kernel um, versus, say, when we're looking at a car or a locomotive or a military weapon system. The, I'd say the biggest difference is that the tooling is so much better on the, uh, the IT side. So whether you're looking at a phone, which has like emulators that you can run on, or at the very least there are ARM processors, and you can do things like load up uh, engines that can run or emulate either pieces of code or full applications, whatever, uh, it, it just exists. And the same thing on like the Windows and Linux side, if you're looking at a binary that runs on one of those systems, you can just run it on inside a virtual machine inside of a virtual environment. And you can almost always replicate the state of the program that you're looking at and do things like dynamic analysis, which means that you know we have tools um, you know, all debug, Canvas and Immunity, all these other things that we can just step through programs and actually analyze how they're running. On the OT side, just getting the firmware can be very difficult and require a lot more steps uh, upfront to get to the part that we can actually feed into some of the tools. And then the tooling is worse. And that's because, you know, they're using a lot of microcontrollers with less known uh, architectures. So it's not, you know, Intel x86 or x86-64 or ARM. You know, it can be some microcontroller specific architecture for that one company that produces that microcontroller. So the, it's just the tooling is the biggest part. And then also getting access to the part that we can actually analyze with those tools is. Yeah. And, and so maybe it sounds like some of the techniques are similar though, right? So you said static and dynamic analysis. Um, so static analysis is, Hey, we're going to take this binary or this program and we're going to lift it up into a uh, from the zeros and ones into a representation that at least some people can understand um, uh, disassembly, right? Uh, and then maybe use some tools that help us pull that apart and map out how the program flows and look at like if then statements and, and different branches in the program tree. But you're, you're fundamentally looking at something that is frozen. It's not, it's the, the program isn't running when you're doing that. You're just sort of reading through how the, how the general flow of the program looks. Whereas when you do dynamic analysis, you're actually setting up an environment where you can watch the program in a sandbox and understand, okay, as I'm stepping through this program, seeing how data is getting manipulated in, in, in the IT side or in the OT side, uh, actually seeing the whole system move in the physical world and sense data and things, right? So, but the tools you're saying are, are not nearly as good on the OT side. Um, and, and one of the other challenges is just even like extracting, uh, extracting firmware from, from these devices, right? So maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, that problem because on the, on the IT side, when you think about 
know, a game binary or something. You've got an executable that's just sitting in a folder uh, on your on your Windows box, and you can take that file, pull it into a disassembler, and go to town. Right? Tell me a little bit uh, about maybe some of the recent projects you had where you you're looking at hardware, like there's there's a board, and you're like, okay. <laughs> Uh, this is my starting point. I need to get this into a disassembler. Like, what is what does that look like? Oh man, there's so much. Uh, <laughs> I'd say that the the big difference, like just at the very most basic level, is when you have a program that runs on an operating system. It's got an interface to the operating system that talks, and it gives us a large surface that we can watch how that program works. So that's that's your IT side. And I actually also want to throw in uh, IoT, so Internet of Things stuff. A lot of times when I see people talking about doing firmware analysis on the IoT side, it's usually like you find some sort of a JTAG or serial port or something that exists on the board that you can then interact with. It's usually running some version of Linux or uh, some Im embedded version, like stripped down version of Linux. And then you still have the same thing where you have a ELF binary, which has a lot of these interfaces and the tooling is actually not that bad. So right. IoT like kind of has that. You're still running an right. operating system. It's running get, an operating system. Exactly. Yeah. When you get on the OT side, we're usually looking at a uh, an ECU, an electronic control unit that has no operating system, right? So there's no interface other than like reading out of a register, finding some data, maybe like looking up and taking action on the data and reading it back out like to something else, like and usually really quickly, and not having that operating system makes things much more difficult because now we have to look at a lot of the times, uh, what do you do when your, you know, your, your hardware has no memory allocator or has no, right. um, no, no standard interfaces, no standard libraries that we can use to accelerate the reverse engineering process? Uh, that makes it a lot more difficult. And do you want me to talk about how we get to the point of being able to actually? Yeah, sure. Proper? All right. Yes, you've you've got these you've got these real time <laughs> systems like all over this board, and mm -hmm. you want to pull it into some tool so that you can start getting a sense of what it looks like. How do you how do you do that? So there's a lot of digging initially. Uh, initially, when I get a new piece of hardware, the first thing I'll do is you'll take it apart and look at it and try to get an idea of what the microcontrollers exist. You know, you usually start looking at the big chips. Um, you know, the little ones you don't care about as much. The big chips are generally where the core of the processing happens. And then you start doing, you know, those dives, you start looking for data sheets, you start looking for, you know, those shady websites that have some, <laughs> someone that's uploaded something that can help you to get an idea of the architecture, to get an idea of the memory layout, and to get an idea if any of the pins on that chip have some sort of a debugging access, whether it's like serial wire interface or like it's a JTAG or whatever. And there's a lot of proprietary interfaces as well that you can then maybe like plug in your hooks onto, like I'm talking about hardware, physical hooks, and then start to see if you can interface with the chip that way. And so microcontrollers are really interesting to people that maybe haven't touched hardware before. Um, how are these different from just like regular integrated circuits that are on a, on a board? So microcontrollers generally have a processor, I'm not going to say general purpose processor. So your computer might have a general purpose processor, which is meant to take and execute arbitrary instructions. A microcontroller is not considered usually general purpose. It can execute a very, you know, usually a limited set of instructions that may be specific to that microcontroller, that family of microcontrollers. Gotcha. Yeah. Question. But they're, they're, they're like closer to computers than, you know, uh, just a, a series of logic gates, like a integrated circuit is. So like you can, you can compile yeah. software and upload it onto this thing while it's soldered to a board and like fundamentally change the way that the, that the system operates. Right. That's um, 
and 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 when you're hooking up those pins you're you're almost like wiring into that process literally wiring into that process that where the the programmer of that microcontroller was interacting with that thing when they were uploading the firmware right like oftentimes these these chips have like debug settings so that you can you can um step through and do dynamic analysis on the chip and make sure that oh i have this weird like thing that happens, like the robot arm goes crazy when, you know, the full moon is out and it's, you know, like um, uh, certain humidity or whatever. And you can, you can emulate that condition and, and, and debug the chip. And, and a lot of reverse engineering is actually like repurposing debugging tools uh, for the purposes of understanding what's going on. Right. Because that's, ultimately what, what they're, what they're supposed to be doing. So, so you've got these, these microcontrollers, you're, you're pulling the firmware off of them. Uh, when you pull the firmware off and you're looking at the disassembly, you're getting a sense of, of, of how these programs are laid out, but, and that's the static analysis side of things, but sometimes you want to do dynamic analysis, right? You want to get this thing running in some sort of uh, sandbox or some sort of conditions and, and see how the inputs and outputs work, right? Because oftentimes using dynamic analysis and static analysis together gives you a better understanding of the system than, than either of them in, in isolation. But when you're talking about an OT system, like building a sandbox can be a little harder than it is on an IT system, right? Because it's not just a, a DLL or an executable or an ELF that you're like running in, a, in an emulator. It, you sometimes have to build like workbenches, right? So I know, Brian, you've, you've done this quite a few times building these, these cyber integration labs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the big problems is that like in the IT world, you have these kind of known underpinning resources, right? Like, you know, you're going to run your software on top of an operating system. It's probably going to be either Windows or Linux or something else. And like Rob was mentioning, there's all these tools that can give you these virtualized environments, right? You can go download VirtualBox, you can get a VMware suite, and then you can open these things up, run them on something that's not really going to damage any of your equipment, and then play around with it. Big problems in the OT space is that everybody's microcontrollers are slightly different. Everybody uses slightly different ways of talking to things. Sometimes there's custom instruction sets that aren't you know, x86 or ARM compliant. And now you're in a problem, right? So you can kind of step through it in that one, you can start to just look at kind of um, almost like a web API, right? Like, you know, you send certain things in, like if I charge this voltage or send this message over the uh, can line, then I'm gonna get this effect out. Like the arm moves up, it moves down, moves left or right. And that can give you some basic idea about how the internals are working. But often what happens is like, you've got to do more than that, right? So you've got to pop the top off. You've got to literally try to pull the code off the chip, usually, usually using like physically invasive means, right? And then what do you do when you have this firmware code? We've well, got to put it somewhere. Some people try things like uh, QMU is a great way to try to do some basic hardware emulation, um, but it's very it's limited in what it can emulate and what it can do. So if you can't do that, then you're kind of stuck. So like virtualization is best being able to emulate what is actually happening on the device without breaking anything. But oftentimes we just have to face the cold hard reality of like there's way too many possible combinations of custom chips built by original manufacturers. And so you just end up having to say, look, I'm just gonna buy three. I'm gonna play with one, use one as a reference. And one's my backup when I assuredly break the first one trying to do stuff to it. Um, and that's kind of the more realistic play on how um, on how people really look at reversing this stuff. So, so one of the interesting things about what you just described, Brian, is there's a lot of just like 
very minute details when you're quote unquote playing with the, uh, with this thing to try to pull the firmware off or to figure out what the, what the protocol looks like as this, as this chip is communicating over a bus. Robert, what are some of the tools that you commonly use to try to um, achieve those goals of like, say, doing packet collection on one of the serial lines or, or removing the firmware from a microcontroller? So as I say, well, we don't have like an operating system and we don't have like a, a something that we can reference for a normal way a binary executes. What we do have is a lot of standardized ways that these things communicate. So like you're talking about, you mentioned CAN, the controller area network is a huge, it's a data bus and it's used widely across different components. So once you understand that a CAN bus looks a certain way over like an actual wire, then we can use things like oscilloscopes and logic analyzers and start to look for, you know, while a system is powered, voltage patterns that match what we'd expect a, a bus data to look like as it transits these things. And there's several standards. So the first tool that I would say that you need to do this kind of work is expand your knowledge. You have to go beyond like understanding like TCP IP as your protocol for analysis into CAN bus, into like the very many serial protocols that they have and start to understand, yep. you know, the synchronous versus asynchronous and unidirectional or bidirectional or like one wire protocol, all that. And it helps you get a huge jump into what, something is doing why, and then start to bring in your um, other tools that are actually like hardware. So your oscilloscope is pretty useful. Logic analyzers, very useful, very, very useful, I should say. And then uh, like your bench up power supplies and that kind of stuff. And then specialized hardware for the bus protocols that you're trying to analyze. If you can capture those, uh, you know, either to a, like a laptop or Raspberry Pi, whatever, yeah. then you can start to use tools to actually uh, decode the data moving across it. And that, and that helps a lot. Yeah, like the bus pirate. I don't know if you've ever messed with the that. It's like saved my life a million times. It's like I know this is a serial protocol. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's SPI or ITC or what it is, but like you just pop this thing into a USB port on your on your development station, and then oh, there you go. There are all the the bytes for the protocol. Like the tooling is getting better very slowly, but um, to your point, there's you know, these things get pretty complicated. And so the people that are engineering the systems tend to reuse the same protocols and microcontrollers and design principles because they work, right? And ultimately the people that engineer these systems wanna make them work. Um, one of the interesting things that's starting to happen though, because there's this cat and mouse game between people who engineer these systems and then people who reverse engineer these systems is that we're actually starting to see more and more anti-tamper, anti-reverse engineering um, techniques uh, on, the, on the OT side. Th these have been around for a while on the IT side. You see things like anti-debugging, you see things like code obfuscation or encryption and code enclaves and cryptographic signing and all of this stuff that tries to get in the way of, uh, of the person that's either reverse engineering or building um, undocumented features on top of, uh, on top of the thing that, that they're studying. But when there's hardware involved, necessarily some of these things are going to be different and how you, how you prevent reverse engineering. What are the, some of the things that we see today that, that make it harder to reverse engineer OT components? So definitely uh, on ECUs, ECMs, and these have been around, I mean, for a while, but, you know, we do see like a seed key algorithms where to communicate with an ECU, you have to kind of have like a matching sequence and, you know, it can be hard to figure out if you don't have a, uh, an actual reference system to observe. And I would say one of the harder things is not with an OT system, like you don't have a full train that you can just sit there and plug into. Usually you may have a component of a train and then 
uh, we also are seeing more, you know, code signing, code verification, uh, which was actually absent for a long time, but that's starting to come up more. And then what I anticipate seeing more now that it's really taken like the uh, mobile market is uh, trusted platform modules and, um, you know, secured boot all the way through, like, you know, when something starts up to like loading the software from maybe an external EEPROM or an update process. Yeah, we're starting to see encryption on on some of the protocols, right? Like uh, for older systems, um, doing basic encryption means a lot of computational overhead. And these systems typically have really, really tiny, like low, uh, low compute capacity c- controllers on them. And so adding security on top may double or triple the computational demands. Um, so historically, things like CAN buses and... Um, a rank on aircraft and mil standard 1553. Like we haven't seen encryption most of the time, but uh, we're starting to see a bit more of that, particularly for, with things like firmware updates um, where you've got cryptographic checks that happen on the ECU before it'll load firmware into memory. Um, definitely makes it harder to attack these systems and also to reverse engineer them. Uh, and, and even some simple stuff like rubbing the model numbers off of chips can be like uh, pretty irritating super when you're annoying. trying to reverse yeah. something. <laughs> super annoying, right? Because, um, you know, when you have that model number, uh, when you can go, you, you mentioned this before, you can get a, a what's called a data sheet, right? Um, and the data sheet is a really, I mean, there's high variance of quality with data sheets, but uh, data sheets will tell you a lot, especially in the case of a microcontroller about exactly how that thing works. Uh, and sometimes if you don't have the model number, you'll have to like observe the thing and like put oscilloscopes on all the pins and say, oh, okay, I guess this is a GPIO pin. This one looks like it's SPI. This one looks like whatever. And you try to tease out if it's got a JTAG or whatever. Um, and then you just use, ed- to your point, educated guessing to say, okay, I'm pretty sure this is a, you know, an STM uh, family of microcontrollers, this is a pick microcontroller or whatever. And then you just start looking through data sheets to look up the pinout matches. Um, and all well, try not to short pins and ruin your <laughs> hardware. <laughs> or to Brian's point, you buy 10 of them. Yes. <laughs> and sometimes you can do really interesting things to like leverage publicly available information. For example, in the United States, if you have something that emits an RF signature, you have to have yep. something with the FCC. Oftentimes you can actually get pictures and component breakdowns of the different pieces in those devices if they're truly FCC certified. Because they have to file it. Yep, yep. And that can kind of shortcut what is normally a very consumer protective piece where like people knowing what they're getting, they know how it works. The government is certifying that this isn't going to give you like, you know, some crazy cancer or something. But now the information is now out there for people to break it back down, figure out how the interior components work. To, make, to manipulate it to do some other thing, right? So there's a lot of totally. open source information that when amalgamated together can produce some really interesting like insights into what's going on on the device. Yeah, patents are another one, uh, ironically, right? Like patents are there for, <laughs> for IP protection, but I mean, you have to expose how the system works. And a lot of times in patent filings, you'll see really detailed sketches and schematics of like how these electronic components come together and you can use those. They're just... Uh, greatly accelerate your reverse engineering process. So, I mean, if I'm thinking about getting reverse engine into reverse engineering and I hear this conversation, I'm like, okay, it sounds pretty hard. There's a lot of like terminology here. Um, IT 
uh, reverse engineering sounds interesting. I can like hack games. I can like get to know how Windows works and uh, pull down malware and understand how how all of these like really devastating crypto locker attacks happen or how people are building exploits. Like that seems really fun. And then you hear uh, the three of us like telling war stories about how difficult it is to interact with hardware and add that on top of the reverse engineering process. But we do it anyway, right? Um, Robert, what is the thing that like attracts you to OT and reverse engineering in this context, given that you've, you've had a background in IT uh, reverse engineering, but still somehow um, are, are attracted to pulling firmware off of microcontrollers rather than opening up an emulator? Uh, I would say that even though I'm a computer cyber person, I really work with my hands and I like being able to see my labor reflected in the physical world. I actually don't care that much for reverse engineering. Like I'm gonna throw that out there as a senior reverser for shift five. Sorry guys, but <laughs> reverse engineering is always a means to an end. Is that a signal? <laughs> <laughs> and in this case, like it's really cool to be able to see, like you take something and being able to interact with it, uh, having started knowing nothing about it and then seeing that reflected in the physical world, like being able to make a electronic control module of some kind, like stop working when you really want it to it feels pretty good. And then, you know, one of the products that we had for shift five was actually, uh, you know, reverse engineering a train protocol for interoperability because, you know, there's sometimes when they talk, these systems, they talk to each other and the OEMs don't want to allow competitors to come in and being able to go in and produce a product that was better by reverse engineering the, the reverse engineering, the diagnostics protocol, and then being able to get, better information, better like fault monitoring, better alerting out of that. It actually felt really good. Yeah. There's something really satisfying about going to these like really expensive multi-million dollar assets that have digital components in them and apply principles that have been in the IT domain for a really long time and then see like 50 or 100% impro uh, improvements in productivity and the way that people are maintaining these things because you know we're able to get in there understand these weird protocols like that very few people um, take the time to learn about and and layer functionality on top of it um, as well as protect them from from cyber attack because as as I know you've seen Robert and Brian you you and I have seen this a lot when we were in uniform like these systems were just a lot of these OT systems were never designed with cybersecurity in mind. You know, they they were designed for robustness in the physical world and like having different operating conditions where they would be able to fail over gracefully. But they were never designed with like a witting adversary with a Robert like you know banging his head against the wall trying to figure out how to make a cyber attack against an engine control unit. Um, and and having that witting adversary that. That, that enemy that gets a vote and is trying to evade what you're doing is a completely different ball game than worrying about, you know, a runaway train condition, for example, because the brakes are failing. Um, both really important, but it just turns out that historically, no one really thought about the cybersecurity of these things. And you can't really think about the cybersecurity of these things without having a grounding in reverse engineering, right? For all these points that we've, we've talked about, you've got a finished artifact and you've got to figure out where the flaws are on this thing. Um, what's the protocol that it's speaking so that you can monitor what's going over the bus, um, all that kind of stuff. So Brian, where do you see OT security going? And do you think that reverse engineering will be an important skill set uh, in where, where the OT industry is moving? 
Well, it's kind of interesting if like, if I have to give kind of an analogy about how an OT system works versus an IT system, you can think about an OT system a lot like a web API and that something else is running some software that you can't really see, but you know, if you inject certain input signals, certain stuff will come out. So if I send my, you know, encrypted message saying, yes, I have an Amazon account and I want to buy, you know, this pair of socks, then, you know, the output will be two days later, you have a pair of socks like on your front door, right? But you don't really know how the software works on the inside. And so I see in the IT space, a lot of people are reducing their reverse engineering risk by never putting the software in your hands. You know, five, 10 years ago, everybody bought a copy of Word on a CD and you had the no kidding binary that if you had the time and means, you could potentially reverse engineer out what it's doing. Now, Microsoft did a lot of work to make sure you couldn't do that, but it was possible. Nowadays, if your copy of Word actually resides on an Azure cloud somewhere in the Office 365 environment, so that you get permission to use the services, but you can't look at the code, that makes it much more difficult. Now, to me, what's interesting about the OT space is in some ways they're going the reverse direction in that you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, a lot of the microcontrollers on major OT components did very simple jobs, right? Like, hey, my job is a digital engine controller. I'm, we're kind of exploring this whole compute space as an OT company. And all we're having you do is smooth out the acceleration curve on a car pedal by taking two data points doing a calculation, aka just like doing the average value, and then outputting that as the actual output of someone pressing down on the pedal so you don't get jerky responses, you get nice smooth fuel flow to the engine, right? Kind of relatively simple things. Nowadays, as people are getting more and more enamored about like the cool stuff that embedded computers can do and how you can save fuel or you can make cars faster or you can spin satellites at a perfect amount of like consumption of solar energy, uh, people like on the consumer side and on the design side are demanding more and more processing power on these OT components. So even nowadays, something like, um, you know, a tire pressure monitoring system on a truck, right? Before you used to know when your tire was flat, when it was literally flat, you couldn't drive anywhere <laughs> and you could hear the metal on the road, right? But now you have systems that are attached uh, physically separate to each tire they are communicating on RF waves using certain packet protocols to be received by an antenna. The antenna is attached to your car that has a processor and memory running that allows you to say things like, oh, tire number one is at this pressure, it is low and it has to process that raw RF input, then process it again to turn it into a message to send over the CAN line that connects all the components of the vehicle so that it can pop up in your display saying like, hey, you need to go to the gas station and use the air machine to pump up your front left tire, right? So all of these like consumer desires are increasing the compute power that's available on these embedded components. And quite honestly, the engineers that are responsible for adding these features, they're focused on what is best for the maintainers and for the consumer to get for feature addition. They are typically not, you know, these guys who've been thinking about cybersecurity problems for decades, right? And so often you'll find that what reversers find are flaws were meant to be features, right? Like, oh, I'm a maintainer, I have a special doodad. When I plug it in and connect this pin to this pin, I get it to just spill all its information about what the errors on the computer are, right? When in uh, reality, if someone can figure that out by doing reverse engineering on it, now I can learn a lot or do a lot to a vehicle that's not meant to be messed with. And so I think 
as you go into the future, as you have all these different features being added, one, unless somebody sits on top and figures out a way to make one single protocol to rule them all, which in my practical experience has never happened, um, then there's going to be all these different kind of protocols running along the lines. And in some ways, people will assume that makes them more defensible, right? It's like, oh, this is you know, our company's protocol, we make cars, we're the only ones that use this, we don't give out the documentation for this and nobody's gonna figure it out. When in reality, I think as the value of the hacks go up, you know, if I can hack onto somebody's car and say like, send me 0.1 Bitcoin or I'm gonna crash you into the ditch, uh, suddenly that becomes much more useful and a high payoff, especially as bigger things like oil, gas, shipping, planes become more and more literally controlled by embedded controllers not even yep. just talking about autopilot and the like but how they detect where they are where they're going through their transportation lanes how they communicate with other devices how industry is getting its data and people automate more and have manual processes for less then kind of the the concern from the malicious attack perspective is higher because the payout is higher to somebody who wants to do something malicious so like Right. And the, the components themselves are getting more complex and generally more complexity gives you a greater attack surface and you only need to win once. That's, That's right. the beauty that Rob and I have yeah. about being people with an offensive hacker mindset is the defender has to win every time. Right. right? Or at least when they lose, uh, they need to figure out that they've <laughs> lost very quickly so they can yeah. kick you out of the system. But the attacker only has to win once. And right. so like if you can find that one win across a very large complex attack surface, and that's the way that embedded OT is going, um, then you're in the money. And so that's really our job is to make sure that somebody's thinking that way so we can point out those flaws in different uh, you know, vehicles or OT systems that we assess and say, hey, this is a flaw, a piece of your tax service is left open, let us help you fix it so that way you don't have people looking at your uh, device in the same way. Right. And I mean, we're already seeing attackers targeting OT heavy companies. It's just that it's pretty lowbrow stuff right now. I mean, we're going to talk about this next week on the podcast, um, the Omnitrax hack. So this is a, uh, a, a, a freight operator, a locomotive uh, rail operator who got hit with uh, crypto locker malware that shut down a lot of their IT infrastructure. Um, and that's just stopping them from kind of conducting operations because they're not able to access information. Imagine if instead the attackers were able to ground an entire fleet and hold the fleet hostage and just completely stop business operations. Like that's not science fiction. We, we see this every day that these systems are totally vulnerable to an attacker, like well-orchestrated attacker getting access to these systems and then burying themselves into it so that you're, you're never going to find them and you got to pay some ransom for them to come off. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I, I totally think, unfortunately that's where we're headed and we, the cyber security, cybersecurity community need to start building safety measures into these things so that that doesn't happen. You know, Robert, um, what are some things people that are interested in getting into reverse engineering can do to, to learn more about, OT hacking and hardware hacking and, you know, are there resources out there, books they should be reading, talks they should be uh, listening to on YouTube? What, you know, how do you, how do you stay sharp? Uh, I think a lot of the cybersecurity community is going lower level. I feel like a lot of the attack direction has been getting closer to hardware as the uh, upper level software defenses get better. Um, so Twitter is honestly like, you know, people are sharing a lot of their original research on Twitter. 
it takes a little bit of curating your list to make sure that you're following people that are, you know, putting out good work. Uh, same thing with like other just forums and communities on the internet. And then all the security conferences, you know, keeping up, uh, keeping up with what people are doing. That's a great way to keep abreast of everything. And if you're looking to get started into it, uh, honestly, my advice is do not start with hardware platforms. <laughs> start with something like, you know, a Windows or Linux are great. Yeah. There's a lot of resources out there. Um, you know, I think everyone, at least we're in my my path up, we all got started doing like, you know, crack me's. Yep. So you take a like a little piece of software and, you know, figure out how that works, modify its behavior to like bypass a fake registration screen, that kind of thing. We just had a uh, our, our first episode of uh, the podcast, Brian was on, we talked about CTFs, uh, right? Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of CTFs out there that involve reverse engineering and binary patching to do exactly what you're saying, something that's supposed to be manageable what to do in, in a few hours or a few days, and you can take your time with it. And there are like solutions posted online. So I think that's really good advice. Maybe start with that and then get into trying to like glitch firmware out of microcontrollers as a next step, right? <laughs> and learning your basic tools that translate. So, uh, right. you know, IDA Pro used to be hugely popular as a disassembler and then with the hex rays decompiler with it. But ever since the uh, NSA, the National Security Agency released Ghidra, it's free, it's excellent. And, you know, it's really lowered the cost of entry into uh, like what I consider like one of the most fundamental uh, disassembler, decompiler functionality tools out there. Awesome. Well, I think that's really good advice. Well, I know we're at the uh, at the end of our time here. So Robert, uh, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time out. Uh, this was a really great show and I hope to have you on again soon. All right. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.